um, chipping away at the Psalms, and uh, for this series, we're going until Psalm 16, and then I'll um, preach through another Old Testament book, and then uh, at, after that, we'll find our way back to the Psalms. But for tonight, we're in Psalm 9. So I'm going to read the whole Psalm, and then we'll pray. Psalm 9, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to Yahweh with all my heart. I will recount all your wondrous deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you have maintained my justice and my cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished, but Yahweh abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will render justice for the peoples with equity. Yahweh also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of distress. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to Yahweh who abides in Zion. Declare among the peoples his acts. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh. See my affliction from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. In the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. Yahweh has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Yahweh, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are but men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider this psalm of David, consider uh, his thoughts, his concerns, his desires, even uh, what he may have been going through at the moment, his uh, perceptions of uh, the circumstances around him and the world in general. Help us to understand Help us to listen. Help us to uh, glean wisdom from this psalm. To understand the implications and the applications. And to apply it to our own lives. And please guide us this evening. And guide me as I preach your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Every human being... <laughs> has within themselves, within their heart and their mind, this innate sense and desire for justice. 
and a concept of justice, of what is fair and what is not, what is right and what is wrong, and, and, and whether their, um, their outlook or their perception of justice is accurate, nonetheless they have a desire for justice. We, we see this immediately in, in children and in, in toddlers, especially when uh, they want their own way, and uh, whether that is right or wrong, uh, they have a sense of justice, and you might hear this phrase, well, it's not fair, or that, that's, that was mine, or I deserve this. And, and then as we grow older, um, we have uh, more sophisticated ways of saying the same thing, that I deserve my own way, or I want this, and this is a right or that's wrong and, and sometimes we are in a sense right as we uh, do live in a sin cursed world and people sin against us and there are times in which we are in the right and someone else is in the wrong but nonetheless we go through life and, and we have this concept of justice and fairness and we even see in uh, the laws you know, laws in our own nation and, and laws around um, all the nations of the world, that there's certain things that are um, just wrong, and we know they're wrong. Things like murder or uh, theft or um, uh, some other things like uh, kidnapping or defrauding someone or, or things like uh, uh, sexual assault or uh, all sorts of grievous crimes that are similar in, in many countries. And then there's other, uh, I guess, uh, less serious crimes, which sometimes differ in the laws of different countries. But nonetheless, uh, we all have a sense of justice and fairness and right and wrong. And that's because God has created us in such a way that he has written upon our heart his own law and he's given us a sense of morality we are moral beings we understand right and wrong whether that understanding is uh, a little bit skewed or inaccurate then nonetheless we understand that there is a right and there's wrong there is a sense of morality there is a sense of justice and we desire justice even if we're not exactly uh, right in our desire and that's because as Paul says in Romans 2 that God has written upon all our hearts uh, his own law. And you can turn there and read this. As Paul is in that letter to the Romans, he's laying out this, uh, the gospel in a comprehensive uh, uh, fashion, this argument. And he begins his argument for the gospel, so speaking about that the, the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and proclaiming it, that there is God's power within the gospel, but, but the, the good news of the gospel begins with the bad news of man's sinfulness and his depravity. And so Paul paints that picture of the depravity of man beginning in chapter 1, but then he goes to the Jew, who the, the self-righteous Jew, who thinks that they are um, in, in the right or maybe they're, they're, they're good in God's eyes. And he says this in Romans 2 and, and verse 12. And he says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hear, hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. 
For when Gentiles or the nations who do not have the law naturally do the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day of judgment. We all, in a sense, being created in the image of God and God being just and holy, we have a sense of justice, even if it, that's not exactly accurate. We know right and wrong. And this is, in a sense, the, the theme throughout this psalm, as David is, in a sense, uh, praising God for his righteousness, for his justice, and, and there's this theme of, of justice throughout this whole psalm as he's talking about uh, justice, uh, God's justice uh, delivered upon his enemies, but also on the nations. And he, in a sense, uh, finds his hope, finds his comfort, finds his security in God's justice. Though we can kind of speculate whether or not he's in a dangerous situation. It seems as if he, he may be uh, still living under the threat of enemies. Um, as many of his psalms, we don't know the exact circumstance unless it's given in the superscription or, or that, that heading. And there is a heading in this uh, psalm. Uh, it's, it's, it says, uh, at least in the Legacy Standard Bible, it says, For the choir director, Almuth Laban, a, a psalm of David, or um, you might have something different uh, uh, according to the the son of uh, death or something along those lines that um, this may be attributed to um, his time in which um, shortly after Absalom died or um, during that narrative. But nonetheless, as many of his psalms, we, we see um, a picture into David's life of him um, under threat of enemies, whether that's from Absalom or Saul or the Philistines, and then his desire to for uh, redemption, for God's deliverance, and, and just to praise God. And so as we look at this psalm, we see that these themes of God's righteousness and his justice and his deliverance, but namely his justice and his judgment. Alan Ross, in his commentary on the psalms, he writes this. He says, this psalm is a psalm of thanksgiving to God for punishing the wicked oppressors and defending the oppressed. But it turns into a prayer for the righteous judge of the whole earth to once again vindicate the oppressed. And so we see this sense of thanksgiving, of rejoicing, of praising God for his justice, for his judgment, but also uh, 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 prayers and a desire for God to execute justice and deliver judgment upon the wicked. And so as we look at this psalm, we're going to divide it into two parts, as many commentators have and, and pastors have, that um, we see uh, two clear uh, parts to it. But then even within those two parts, it, it can be divided up into several other ways. But we'll, we'll see. We'll look at this psalm in... in two expressions of David. We see two expressions concerning God's justice and his role as the righteous judge of all creation. These are, in a sense, the two primary expressions which 
we should have whenever we consider justice and God's justice in particular. So first we see in the psalm David's praise of God's justice in verse 1 to 12, and then we will see David's prayer for God's justice in verse 13 to 20. But first we see David's praise of God's justice, and we'll see it in in a sense in two parts as well, from his praise first from a personal perspective and then from a corporate perspective. First, uh, personally, as he praises God for his deliverance. In verses 1 to 4, we read this. I will give thanks to Yahweh with all my heart. I will recount all your wondrous deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you have maintained my justice and my cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. And so we see his praise of God's justice from a personal perspective in, in that <clears throat> he, has, he resolves himself to worship God, to praise God. Um, he has uh, a resolve here in this, uh, verses 1 to 2. We see this statement, I will, I will, I will, I will. I will give thanks. I will recount all your wondrous deeds. I will be glad. I will sing praise to your name. We see these resolutions. And as I see that and I see his resolve, it makes me think of Jonathan Edwards' 95 resolutions. And as a 19-year-old young man, um, and just probably puts most of us to shame. <laughs> and uh, he was an extraordinary young man, but nonetheless, as a young man, as a godly young man, he wrote out 95 resolutions to be the godliest person he could be and to, and to uh, resolve himself to live according to God's word and, and throughout all those resolutions. And we see this active um, desire um, to... Uh, to worship God, to praise God. You see this in, in, in David's statements that I will give thanks. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't, in a sense, wait um, you know, for something to happen. It is in response to what God has done in his life before, but there's this resolution to give thanks. And, and I will recount all your wondrous deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And, and there's, a, there's a lesson for us, an application for us, that, that we shouldn't wait around for God to do something in our life to praise Him or to give thanks to Him or even to uh, uh, remind ourselves of all His wondrous deeds, either throughout um, redemptive history in the Bible or throughout our own lives or in church history. We should recount His wondrous deeds daily. We should uh, resolve ourselves to be glad and exult in you. We should uh, resolve ourselves to uh, sing praise to his name. So oftentimes, you know, we come to church and we don't necessarily feel like worshiping. We know we need to and we know it's a good thing to come to church. And, and uh, if you don't feel like coming to church, the answer is, well, I don't feel like it, so I, I just won't come. The answer is, no, you come. You come and, and you resolve yourself to worship God. And it's kind of like these statements from David, it kind of reminds me of the, the psalmist in Psalm 42 
he, he speaks to himself in, in, in the midst of depression and despair, and he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. He's, he's speaking to himself. He's making these resolutions to praise God despite how he feels. And we don't know if, if David is, is feeling down or not. It seems as if his heart is fixed on God and he really wants to praise him. But nonetheless, we see this resolve. In verses 1 and 2, his resolve to worship God and to praise Him. And then we see his reason for worshiping God in verses 3 and 4. His reason, uh, praising Him for His deliverance, for His justice. As he says, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you have maintained my justice and my cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. He, in a sense, is, is speaking about God, that God has vindicated him in the sight of his enemies. That he has, in a sense, proven uh, David uh, innocent uh, of any charge, uh, whatever it may be, not sinless, but that he has uh, maintained his justice and his cause by defeating his enemies. And just in, in thinking about that, it, this may very well be... Um, uh, concerning that that narrative between him and Absalom, but it could also you could also apply it. It could also be in light of the narrative between him and Saul. Uh, but nonetheless, there, there's a sense that David was in the right and his enemies were in the wrong, and and because of that, God, uh, in a sense, judged his enemies. He he delivered him, and so David praises. God, he, we see his praise of God's justice here from a personal perspective and, and his resolve to worship God. But then second, as we think of David's praise of God's justice, going through that, that theme of God's justice and his righteousness, we see David's praise of God or, or his justice from a corporate perspective in verses 5 to 12. And he's, he says, you have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished, but Yahweh abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will render justice for the peoples with equity. Yahweh also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of distress. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to Yahweh who abides in Zion. Declare among the peoples his acts. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And so in the beginning of this psalm, we see David praising God for his justice and his righteousness from his own personal perspective. But then after thanking God and praising him for delivering him, for redeeming him, for judging his enemies, then he turns his sight towards the nations and towards all the uh, wicked and the unjust peoples. And he praises God for his judgment upon the nations in the past. But also there's a sense that... Um, he will judge them. He, he almost prophesies about their future judgment. And so we see this 
this praise of God's justice from a corporate perspective in the downfall of the unjust nations and peoples, the dominion of the just judge of the universe, and then the declaration of praises by the people of God. First, we see the downfall of the unjust nations and peoples in verses 5 to 6, where he says, you have rebuked the nations. You've confronted them. You've stopped them. You've rebuked them. You've made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. You've you've, uh, banished them. You've uh, discharged them from the earth. You've destroyed them. Verse 6, the enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins. This, This thought of, in a sense, eternal destruction. Perpetual ruins, uh, continual uh, destruction and damnation in hell. And you have uprooted the cities, those wicked cities that have promoted wickedness. You have uprooted them. The very memory of them has perished. And so we see the downfall of the unjust nations and people. And, and, And there's... There may be a, a, a dual sense of his judgment in the past. We may think of cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, but there's also a sense of uh, prophetic, uh, uh, prophetic uh, judgment in the future. That he will destroy the wicked. He will destroy wicked nations. They, there will be a downfall. Because he is the just judge of the universe. And he has dominion over everything. Verses 7 to 10. But Yahweh abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. That's a theme and a, and a phrase that is repeated over and over again in Scripture. He will render justice for the peoples with equity. Perfect justice. Yahweh also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of distress. And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. We see both this, this, uh, in a sense, this uh, judgment and this hatred towards evil, but also God's compassion for the oppressed, that, that they will not always be afflicted, but they will um, receive justice. It's interesting, one commentator, he wrote this, this uh, concerning uh, these verses. He says, said, the Lord's just rule is his people's security. The Lord's just rule is his people's security or our comfort. And, and we might not see his just rule or his justice or his judgment come in our own time frame, but nonetheless, it will come. And so the fact that he will deliver justice and he will judge the wicked and he will um, uh, redeem and deliver the oppressed, uh, we find comfort and security in that fact. And because of that, because of his justice, um, David, in a sense, he calls uh, the peoples to praise him. In verses 11 and 12, he says, Sing praises to Yahweh who abides in Zion. Declare among the peoples his acts, for he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. 
We see this declaration of praises by the people of God that, um, as I quoted from Psalm 42, hope in God for I shall again praise him. Uh, that um, affliction and trial and challenge and oppression, it's only for a time. If we have placed our hope in God, if we have trusted in him, if we have been saved by him, no matter what this world may um, bring upon us, no matter wh whether it's persecution or torture, it's only for a time because we have an eternal hope in Christ and in God's perfect eternal justice. There's also a sense of this hints at uh, capital punishment as well. As we read in verse 12, that uh, he says, For he who requires blood remembers them. This is hinting back at, at uh, Genesis 9 and, and what... Um, what God, in a sense, uh, speaks to uh, Noah and um, this provision for capital punishment of uh, he who uh, sheds man, man's blood by his blood shall be shed as well. That, that he will, uh, uh, the blood of the innocent will be avenged. And that God remembers that. He remembers uh, those who, uh, you know, he requires their blood from them. Those who would murder, those who would destroy. Alan Ross, once again, he writes this. He says, every act of deliverance is cause for praise. And every act of deliverance is a preview of the final deliverance to come, which is cause for greater praise. And that's what we see here from a personal perspective, from David's personal deliverance, that he then praises God, but then he also looks forward to a future deliverance and a future judgment. And then from a corporate perspective as well, we see him looking back in the past, but also affirming God's justice and his judgment in the future. And that ultimately results in praise as all things uh, happen for God's glory. So we see first uh, David's praise of God's justice in this psalm, and then the, the second we see his prayer for God's justice. He, he, he praises him for the justice that he's experienced and that he's seen among the nations and that he will see, he knows that is coming, but then he prays for justice in the here and now, in his time frame, but then in the future as well. Verses 13 to 20. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh. See my affliction from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made, in the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. Yahweh has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Yahweh. Do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are but men. We've seen his praises for God's justice, and now we see his petition as he 
petitions the Lord uh, for God's justice in, in a personal aspect, in a personal sense. And as he prays to God, we, we in a sense, see four things he prays, he prays for, or four elements of prayer. And as um, I've shared before um, concerning prayer, and we probably, many of us, we uh, being discipled, we've been taught the ACTS acronym of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, which is good, but there are other elements of prayer, of affirmation, of assertion, of praise. And so in this prayer of David, we in a sense see four elements of prayer. We see a petition, a personal petition first in verses 13 to 14. Then we see a confident affirmation, primarily of God's judgment in verses 15 to 16. Then we see a hopeful assertion in verses 17 of 18 of also God's judgment and his deliverance. And then finally, we will see an infuriated plea in verses 19 to 20. But first, a personal petition as he says, Be gracious to me, O Yahweh. See my affliction from those who hate me. He's asking for grace, pleading for grace, praying for grace via redemption. That, that God would show his grace to uh, David by redeeming him from the affliction of his enemies, his oppressors. But he not only petitions the Lord for grace via redemption, but for his glory amongst his people, that he would be glorified amongst his people, that he says in verse 14, that I may recount all your praises. That in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. In a sense that he would praise God in the gates of Jerusalem. In the, the, the gates of Zion. In, in, within the city. And in, in the ancient Near East, the, the gates were, were of the city were a, a corridor, a long corridor, where there would be booths where people would be selling stuff. That was, in a sense, probably the main market as people... Uh, came in and out, uh, farmers or herders or merchants came in and out of the city, and, and that was the main place where um, transactions would be made. It, it was uh, a place where there was hustle and bustle of the city, and he talks about praising God in the midst of all that, within the marketplace where all the people are, praising God in the gates of the city because of his deliverance, that he would glorify him amongst his people and that's really the point of all things that's the point of God's deliverance that's the point of our prayers that's the objective that God would receive all the glory <clears throat> as God in a sense in Psalm 50 I remember this I I quote this and it's convicting in a sense and it's a in a sense a form of rebuke as God is rebuking the people for their um, vain worship and their perfunctory worship and he, he's saying uh, you know what is this uh, you, you know this uh, you know trampling of my courts um, with your perfunctory uh, worship I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. He's saying, I, I, 
all this is mine anyways. I don't need it. And he says in verse 14, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. In verse 15, this verse right here, Call upon me in the day of distress or in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will glorify me. The, 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 the lesser is always blessed by the greater. Now, there's nothing that we can give to God that he hasn't already given to us first, that, that he delights in, in our petitions and our requests and us calling upon him because then he then delivers us and then we glorify him, we praise him. And so David, in a sense, prays along that line. He prays for God's grace via redemption and then for his glory that God would deliver him and then he would then glorify God. And so we see his personal petition. But then second, we see a confident affirmation in verses 15 to 16. He confidently affirms God's judgment as he says, The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made, in the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. Yahweh has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. And we could take this one of two ways, or, or both ways, and I think both ways is right, that he could be speaking of uh, 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 something in the past, that the, God has judged the nations in the past, or he, he will judge the nations in the future, but he speaks about it in, in a sense, a, a past tense. And many times in uh, uh, the prophets and in the Psalms, and David uses this, uh, what is known as... Uh, in a sense, a prophetic future, that uh, tense, a prophetic future tense, that it is a done deal. It hasn't happened yet, but they speak as if it has because it's so sure that it will happen. And so he expresses this confident affirmation of his, within his prayer of future judgment. And, and he does so, not, not just of, of God judging the wicked and the nations, but there's this sense of which uh, many commentators have, have noted, have called the boomerang effect. He, he affirms God's future judgment via devious plotting or, or, or the, the, the own um, nations and the own wicked, their plans, their, their, their wicked plans that it will boomerang back upon them. It'll turn back upon them. And, and part of God's judgment is their own works. This is once again, uh, you know, those cartoonish pictures are within the cartoons of, you know, the, 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 um, the bad guys digging out a pit for a trap and then they forget that it's there and then they fall into the pit or, you know, the, the comical, um, you know, practical joke that someone sets up for somebody and then they, you know, uh, trip the, the uh, trip wire and the, the bucket falls on their own head of full of water or whatever is in it. You know, we see that in, in cartoons and sitcoms, but it actually happens in real life sometimes. You know, I, I remember uh, being my uh, second deployment in Afghanistan in, in uh, 2013, and there was a time frame where... Um, because of our work in, uh, you know, whether it's special operators or whatever, and in, in, uh, finding uh, uh, terrorist bomb makers, uh, uh, at that point, uh, all the good bomb makers had been uh, killed or captured. And so 
we're dealing with amateur bomb makers who many times in, in, in that time would blow themselves up. <laughs> As either we'd hear it, I'd hear it all the time of them, oh, another bomb maker, he blew up a whole classroom of you know, potential terrorist bomb makers uh, making bombs and, and uh, you know, fell into, in a sense, as David says here, into their own pit. In the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. It's a form of God's judgment. Even Solomon says in Proverbs 26, 27, he who digs a pit will fall into it. He who rolls a stone, it will turn back on him. Maybe not immediately, but he's saying that that lifestyle, that malicious, deviant, um, evil lifestyle will at some point catch up to the wicked person. And so he has this confident affirmation of future judgment via devious plotting of the wicked, but also, also future judgment via divine providence. That, that God will, as he says in verse 16, Yahweh has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. And so God providentially works out circumstances so that the wicked, in a sense, uh, their own wickedness is part of their own judgment. And we see this laid out, in a sense, uh, in Romans 1. As Paul is laying out the depravity of man and man's own wickedness, he says this in Romans 1 and verse 24, talking about the, um, the evil and the depravity of man in his heart, and, and there's a, a idolatrous, a sense of idolatry and worship there. And he says this in Romans 1, 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For ex they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And there is a sense that the previous verses are talking about sexual immorality. But um, there's also a sense that in their own wickedness and their own depravity, because they've rejected God, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped idols and all sorts of creaturely things, they've gone so far in their sin that God, in a sense, handed them over to, as some um, translations say, to a debased mind, so that they can't even think straight. He gives them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. It's a form of judgment. Their own wickedness becomes a form of judgment as he hands them over to their own wickedness and they descend further and further into wickedness. And so there is a warning there for those who are outside of Christ and who are living a sinful lifestyle that that lifestyle will eventually not only catch up with you, but it may be the means of your own judgment. And there is a point of no return when there, God no longer um, allows you the provision for repentance. David, he confidently affirms God's judgment in this sense, this, this boomerang effect. That the wicked themselves, part of their judgment is their own wicked plotting, their own evil designs. And third, in David's prayer, we see a hopeful assertion. 
a hopeful assertion, verse 17 and 18. He says, the wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Forever, This is, we see a hopeful assertion that the wicked will be banished from the earth, so to speak. It's interesting that he says, he uses this phrase, the wicked will return to Sheol. You know, Old Testament, this term Sheol, in the Jewish mind, that that was a a term for the grave. It could also, in a sense, mean um, hell, but... But in the Jewish mind frame, because there wasn't a lot, <clears throat> the prophets didn't speak a lot about hell. The, the, Jesus spoke the most about hell out of anybody. And before Jesus came in his earthly ministry and spoke to us about eternal judgment, um, in the Jewish mind frame, really, um, the only one who really spoke um, a lot about hell is, is Isaiah, towards the end of Isaiah. But they knew that there was a judgment. They, they knew that it was beyond the grave. And so this, this term of returning to Sheol, to the grave, to death, uh, there is a sense of judgment. But it's interesting that he uses the phrase return. And it almost uh, links back to man's um, depravity that we come into this world, as David said in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. But we also know that there are two families. There's a family of God, and then there's the children of God, and then there's the family and the children of Satan, of the devil. That Paul says in Ephesians 2 and other places that we are either of one of two families, or one of two kingdoms, the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness, and we all come into this world under the dominion of darkness and in the family of the devil. And that's why we need to be born again. And so there's a sense that he's, David is speaking that the wicked will return from return to hell or return to the grave from whence they came, so to speak, Even all the nations who forget God, they will go to the place which they deserve. And more than that, there's a sense of they will be banished from the earth. As we read in the Sermon on the Mount, as as Jesus says in Matthew 5, and he's he's, he's, uh, preaching to the crowds, and he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The, the earth is, in a sense, the stage on which God displays His glory throughout all of throughout creation. Further, in the Sermon on the Mountain, verses 13 to 14 of Matthew 5, he, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Uh, using salt as this, this image, this analogy of believers as they are a preservative. In that day and age, salt was used for two things, for a flavor enhancer, but also primarily for a preservative, to preserve meat from rot. And so there's a sense that believers um, are to function on the earth in in both those ways, as a preservative uh, against evil and the, the depravity of this world of descending further and further into depravity, but also 
as a, a flavor enhancer, so to speak, that, that we are to be uh, pleasing, um, in a sense, uh, bold, um, tasteful. But he also st- speaks of uh, believers as the light of the world. And so there's a sense that, that um, we believers are good for the world, but the wicked are bad for the world, and in the end, they will be banished from the world because it is only the meek, only the believers, only the salt, only the light that will inherit the earth. The wicked will be banished from the earth. They will return to Sheol. That's that's the first part of his hopeful assertion, but the second part is that the poor and the oppressed will be remembered and delivered from their affliction, from their oppression. He says, for the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Verse 18, there's a sense that um, he's saying uh, God will remember. And not that he has forgotten, but those needy, those poor, those afflicted, those oppressed, um, from their perspective, it's almost as if God has forgotten them, the world has forgotten them, there they are, and they don't know of any other deliverance, and their only recourse is to plead with God. And David gives this hopeful assertion that they will be delivered. They won't be forgotten. They won't perish forever. So long as they come to God and they seek their refuge in God, and they cry out to Him for deliverance, and He will remember them. He will deliver them. And so in David's prayer for God's justice, we see first a personal petition, a confident affirmation, then a hopeful assertion. And finally, in verses 19 to 20, the second portion of David's psalm, we see an infuriated plea in his prayer. In verses 19 to 20, at the end of the psalm, he says this, Arise, O Yahweh, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are but men. We, we, we sense a, a, a bit of anger, of frustration at injustice in the world, in, in David's heart and in his mind and his speech, that he calls upon God to rise up, to, to deliver justice, to judge uh, the evil. Don't let man prevail. And, and he says a man, almost in a general sense, as all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and because of that, that we are all sinners, most people are outside of God and they hate God. And, and because of that, they, they do wickedness and, and they oppress and afflict the people of God and most nations as well. And he's saying, God, rise up. Don't let them prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. He he has this infuriated plea for divine judgment because that's the only one who will bring about justice, and especially among the nations. Because it's it's one thing when we... uh, you know, have an enemy on an individual level or a person, maybe a neighbor, a wicked neighbor or, a, a, you know, a, an associate, a co-worker, even a family member who is, in a sense, has pit themselves against us and maybe even oppressing us. 
Um, you know, maybe we can go to somebody else or go to the government or go to other people to help us out. But when it's wicked nations, you know, where, where do the people of North Korea go for help? Uh, you know, and, and you know, <clears throat> you think of uh, many of the wicked empires, uh, you know, throughout the world history and, and uh, uh, Soviet uh, Russia and, uh, you know, and even, um, you know, China for some being oppressed and, and other oppressive nations, uh, the, the, the people that are oppressed, that are afflicted, where do they, where do they go for help? There's only one place they can go, and that's to God. That, that God would bring about his judgment, that he would humble the nations, that he would put man in his place, so to speak. That they would fear God, that they would know that they're, they're just men. They're, they're, they're not God. And this is what many of the nations they want, the leaders of the nations, they, they, they want to act in such a way that they are in control of all people, that they have sovereignty, that they are, in a sense, God. And so what's interesting is, is um, you see many of the uh, oppressive, wicked nations through, throughout world history that have risen up, and um, there is a religious aspect or, or a worshipful, idolatrous aspect to their rule, um, even in uh, North Korea, who in a sense claims to be somewhat atheistic or, or, or um, outlaws all religion, there is um, some sort of a little bit of mythology there, and, and even um, the, the previous regimes have erected uh, statues, and, and that the people are in a sense to, um, to uh, show their uh, praise, uh, maybe not overtly worshiping, but to their respect, their reverence to these statues of previous rulers. And so when the state, when a, a nation banishes God, they put themselves in the place of God. But David calls God to rise up, to judge the nations, to judge the wicked, to let them know that they're just men. They're just men. And this is similar to what David wrote in Psalm 3, in verses 6 to 7. He said, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who all around have set themselves against me. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my men enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. And so there is a sense that he prays for justice, for judgment upon the nations, upon the wicked people. But there's also a sense that he asserts that it will happen. It will come about. In closing out this psalm and thinking about God's justice and his judgment and uh, his righteousness, I, I'd like you to turn with me to Second Peter 3. And as we are, um, you know, in the church age and we have the benefit of the New Testament and we look forward to Christ's return. There is a sense that we find our hope as evil as the world may get, as wicked as it may get, as um, far as it descends into wickedness. Um, we can um, become um, frustrated or 
angry or um, fearful, but our hope is ultimately in God's justice. And this is what Peter says to uh, believers in his day and age um, who are facing persecution. He says this in 2 Peter 3, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being deluged with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be found out. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens, the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and new earth, in which righteousness dwells. And similar to what David proclaims. Praising God for his justice, for his righteousness, for his judgment, but also praying that he would uh, bring judgment upon the nations, upon the people, that he would let them know that they are but man, men, that he would put them in fear, that the nations would be judged before him. And in our day and age, it's similar that we see um, such just a growing sense of immorality and depravity and wickedness and the descent of our own country and society and Western society and and, uh, many nations around the world. And it, it seems as if things are getting worse and worse, and they are. But God is not slow about his promise as some consider slowness but his judgment will come and as we wait for his judgment we are to be holy and we are to proclaim salvation to other uh, wicked people who are under God's judgment and who will face his judgment unless they repent but our hope is not in the things of this world or um this day and age, but it's in the new heavens and the new earth to come in which righteousness dwells and abounds. As Christ gives a promise to John in Revelation that he will wipe away every tear from every eye. He will rule and reign in righteousness and justice and he will make all things new. 
And no matter what injustice or wickedness we face or oppression, that is our hope, that we hope in the world to come, not in the world in the here and now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for the hope that you give us. Lord, you know our hearts and our minds that we are prone to wander. We are prone to focus on ourselves and our circumstances and our own desires and our own wants and our own needs. But you call us to fix our eyes on things above and not on things below. And as the world gets worse, uh, we are compelled to turn to you and to look for the world to come. Lord, help us to be faithful in this world, in this life, and to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.